Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're talking about 17th century monarch Christina of Sweden. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include historical and contemporary queerphobia and misogyny, and historical and contemporary intersexism, including brief mentions of non-consensual surgeries on intersex people and the historical killing of intersex babies. It will also include the use of outdated language for intersex people in quotes, misgendering in quotes, mentions of mental illness, mention of deliberate harm of an infant, brief mentions of war and death in war, and the description and discussion of an execution. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. I'd also like to thank Redale, whose username I may be mispronouncing, The Prettiest Boy, and two other anonymous Tumblr users who suggested the topic of today's episode. I love the power move of making your... (laughs) username the prettiest boy because whenever we mention them we have to be like shout out to the prettiest boy and they get to be like it's me (laughs) yeah true yeah that's true we've mentioned them a few times on this podcast so i hope they enjoy that every time that is a username it's not just us having been like no like we did the research (laughs) and it's just true turns out it's true (laughs) i would also like to thank our patrons who voted on the topic of this episode So I want to say a few more things before we actually begin. I'm going to be using he, him pronouns for Christina in this episode. We're going to discuss this mostly at the end of the episode. Probably it will come up during the episode, but for now, you just have to bear with me. I also want to say that although Christina did experiment with a few masculine names during his life, he never settled on one or used one for long, and generally he used the name Christina, so that's the name I'm going to be using. Keeping in mind that we're going to have a fair bit of discussion about Christina's gender and sexuality and so forth, I don't have time to talk too in-depth about several aspects of his biography, particularly his later life I'm not going to devote much time to. The theme that ties together what I have chosen to talk about is largely Christina's struggle to exert influence and fulfil political ambitions at a time where there wasn't much space for people assigned female at birth to do that, and even less space for gender non-conforming people in general. The last thing I want to say before we start is that I'm going to try and say a lot of European names in this episode. And I'll probably get some things wrong, and I apologise in advance for anything I pronounce poorly. I'm so interested to hear you pronounce Swedish words. (laughs) Is that really why you came today? (laughs) You're in my house! (laughs) So, Christina was born on the 8th of December, 1626, in Stockholm. He was the only living child of King Gustav II of Sweden, and Gustav's wife, Queen Maria Eleonora. When he was born, the midwives announced to Christina's parents that he was a boy. In his autobiography, Christina explains that this was because he was born with a call, so that is a piece of the amniotic membrane. Oh, so was I. Yeah, well, there you go. (laughs) Did they assign you male at birth? They did not. (laughs) Yeah, so in Christina's case, he was born with a piece of the amniotic membrane covering his torso and his abdomen, so obscuring his genitals. But since he was covered in hair and had a very loud yell as a baby... So some, ba- in hair? some babies are born covered in hair. It's What? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's just a true thing. So I think all babies are covered in like a light layer of hair in the womb and generally they lose that before birth. But for some babies, especially premature babies, they still have that when they're born. Eli's just losing his mind here. <laughs> I can't believe the babies have been hairy this whole time. And this is the first I'm hearing of it. How much hair are we talking? Like pretty light fine hair. Like... Light fuzz. Yeah. I'm so uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) 
weird little hairy baby. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, oh, this has already been too much. <laughs> okay, so when he was born, they said he was a boy. But a few yeah. hours later, they changed their minds. A few hours later. Well, a few hours later, they Informed. went back to his parents, specifically his father, who they told first, and said, actually, you have a daughter, not a son. Is um, this true? This is something that Christina says in his autobiography and something that I think his father also says and definitely his father's close friend who was close to Christina as well says okay. and who would have known about this at the time. So, yeah, I think it's true. Okay. This is a wild piece of speculation. Cool. Let's just get let's, into it straight let's away. Go. I have to say the, like, covered by amniotic sac part and we didn't notice for a couple of hours sounds a bit iffy. It's, I can think there are maybe other reasons why they weren't sure what call to make here. Yeah, no, there's also the possibility, which I was going to discuss at the end when we get more into our discussion about gender and sex and sexuality, that Christina was intersex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that is something that was discussed, not using that language because they didn't use the word intersex at the time, but was discussed during Christina's life and has been discussed by scholars after Christina's death. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that's a possibility that we will talk about. I can't believe babies are hairy. <laughs> oh, that's so weird. It's just that maybe like, you were hairy. No, maybe you were. <laughs> no, you can't just bring this into my life. I'm gonna wake up at like four in the morning and be like, hairy babies. <laughs> Please proceed. I'm not gonna get over this today. Okay, okay, that's alright. We'll let you process that. Yeah. So I want to mention. Wait, no, no. I'm sorry, listeners. Did you know that babies were born covered in hair? Sometimes I'm sure that I'm not the only person being like, what the ever loving. <laughs> Write in if you think it's weird that babies can be born covered in hair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's continue, let's continue. So yeah, I want to say before we go further that I'm going to refer to Christina at points in this episode as a signed female at birth. That's not strictly true, but, you know, for the purposes of ease of referencing what's happening, I'm going to say that. I guess Christina was a signed female. Very young, but not at birth. <laughs> yeah, a signed female not long after birth. <laughs> Still, when he had his baby hair. <laughs> we need to move on. No. That's not the point of this episode. Isn't it? No. Okay. So, when Gustav was told that he had a daughter rather than a son by midwives... He was thrilled. He was surprisingly fine with it. Okay. He responded, according to Christina, who obviously, you know, wants to paint himself as having his father's support. Gustav said, let us thank God. She will be clever, for she has deceived us all. <laughs> That's <Aww>. pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> what year are we in here? 1626. Like, frankly, having an alive baby and an alive wife is a pretty good... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Maria and Lenora had been pregnant several times before and they'd had one child die in infancy before. She'd had several stillbirths. So having an alive baby was yeah. pretty good. European politics at the time were quite unstable. It was the middle of the Thirty Years' War, which was a war that encompassed much of Europe and Sweden was involved in that war. And so Gustav was very keen to have an heir, regardless of sex, to bring some stability in case he died in the war and so forth. So when Christina was very young, he passed laws to ensure that despite being assigned female at birth, Christina could be his heir. Nice job, Gustav. Yeah, Gustav's a pretty good guy, I think. 
This is wildly unprecedented for medieval fathers. Yeah. So as Gustav had feared, when Christina was five, Gustav was killed in the Thirty Years' War. Oh, what? Our only good medieval dad and he's gone. Yeah. Is this even the medieval period? When does the medieval period end? I googled that at some point in this episode and then I was like, I'm not dealing with that. Our only good early modern dad. (laughs) So at that point, Christina became the monarch of Sweden. Oh. How old is he? Five or six. I forget this thing where Europe just makes babies the king. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There was a regency council which kind of looked after both Christina and Sweden until Christina reached 18. So it's not like Christina makes decisions for the country now, but Christina is officially the monarch. Officially, Christina was king of Sweden. The title queen refers specifically to the wife of the monarch, and the title king refers to the monarch themselves. Oh, that's interesting. So it actually wasn't a gendered title as such. I think it was a gendered title in that Sweden had had one queen I'm aware of before, but Gustav had to pass laws to ensure that someone assigned female birth could become the monarch. So I think it was just an expectation that the person who was the monarch would be male and therefore that title would be king. And they just kind of continued that. Christina is referred to colloquially and, you know, quite often at the time as queen or princess or a variety of other female titles, but also as king. So you will hear both. Both were used. Officially, he was king. As I mentioned, until Christina was 18, Sweden was ruled by a regency council. I like that it's a council and it's like a, a regent. guy. Yeah, I think that was a deliberate choice that Gustav made. So there were five people on the council. There was a head of the council. So in the meantime, until he reached 18, Christina received an education which was designed to prepare him to rule the country. So this included politics and philosophy and maths and languages. Christina claims that by age eight, he was studying 12 hours a day, quote, with an inconceivable joy. I mean, I'm glad because that sounds awful. I was going to say, I was ready to be so worried for him, but I'm glad he was happy. Look, I think that that may be a bit of an exaggeration on Christina's part, frankly. He was very intelligent and he did really enjoy studying, but he does kind of talk this up in a way that isn't realistic. To put a more realistic spin on how his studies were going, we have a memo written by him when he was 10, written in Latin, which reads, We hereby promise to speak Latin with our tutor from now on. We know we have promised this before and not kept our word, but with God's help, we will keep it this time, beginning next Monday, God willing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. I love it too. It's so good. Uh, Christina was particularly interested in all the kind of traditionally masculine subjects that he was studying. So when studying history, for example, he was kind of presented with Elizabeth I as a role model for how his life might pan out, and he rejected that and turned to Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar as his historical heroes. He liked fencing and riding and hunting. He liked reading about great generals. He wrote later in his autobiography, As a young girl, I had an overwhelming aversion to everything that women do and say. I despised everything belonging to my sex. What's more, I was hopeless at all the womanly crimes. Scholars often paint Christina's young aversion to femininity as being shaped by his relationship with his mother. Christina did not have a good relationship with his mother. He says that Maria Eleonora scorned him because she'd hoped for a son and instead got somebody she thought was a daughter, and then her daughter had not turned out to be conventionally feminine. Christina even believed that his mother had dropped him as a baby, causing a deformity in his chest and shoulder that would trouble him for the rest of his life. What? Okay. Explain more. Why does he think that this happened? I don't know why Christina thinks that this happened, and I'm not clear if that is what happened, so... 
For example, there are other sources that say that Sweden's a Protestant country and <laughs> sources say that Catholics snuck in and dropped Christina as a baby. So what? What? that is so much less Why plausible. Why are we so sure that Christina was dropped, though, and not just had some, like, natural, like... Natural deformity? Yeah. Or just fell down something. I don't know. How, old, stairs, like, like, how baby are we talking? I think pretty young. There's never any writing of kind of, like, before and after this happened. It's just kind of like this happened as a baby. This baby went through so much. Yeah, no, he did. Maria Eleonora seems to have suffered from mental illness, and she was eventually excluded from Christina's upbringing entirely. That's sad. It is sad. Maria Eleonora didn't have a good life, I'm afraid. So at 18, Christina took the throne of Sweden. I don't really have time to talk about all the various internal Swedish politics that you dealt with. I don't truly want you to, if I'm being honest. <laughs> no, is, is it gay? Politics aren't gay. Exactly. No. Um, are we good historians? <laughs> we're just focused historians. Okay. Yeah, there are plenty of books you can read about the politics of Sweden in the early modern period, <laughs> but this isn't one of them. The other thing Christina was known for during his reign was his love of arts and kind of culture, like theatre and music and so forth. So before he took the throne, Sweden wasn't well known for things like this. The best compliment a visiting French scholar could come up with visiting early in Christina's reign was more fun than Switzerland anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Switzerland. So is liking the arts a sort of gendered interest? Is that something that's like appropriately masculine for a male of of a crust to be into or...? I think that liking the arts isn't necessarily gendered. Christina did pay a lot of foreign scholars to come to Sweden and be in the Swedish court, and he would meet one-on-one with those scholars and be in largely masculine circles in that context, and that was not considered appropriate. And there are a lot of rumours that he was having sex with these people. So Go ahead and assume that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, most of these rumours probably weren't true. So yeah, while an interest in the arts was not necessarily inappropriate, kind of an interest in scholarship and education and moving in those circles was. So Christina also began collecting artworks and books and so on. This was partly by sending out agents throughout Europe to purchase them and partly also as loot in the Thirty Years' War, which was still going on. In 1648, speaking of Christina's collecting of art, Sweden launched an attack on Prague. And Christina sent specific orders to the army that they shouldn't focus on bombarding the city. They should focus on plundering the castle, which housed a famous library and a collection of art and scientific objects, including, among other things, 500 paintings, 70 bronze sculptures, nails from Noah's Ark, (laughs) the jawbone of one of the sirens from the Odyssey, (laughs) and one live lion. Oh, what? That's just the kind of myth collections that nobility had at the time. (laughs) Nails from Noah's Was the lion from Noah's Ark too? Maybe. Yeah. So the peace treaty to end the Thirty Years' War was signed in this same year. And part of the peace treaty was that whatever was in Swedish territory would be Swedish and things that were not would not. So there was this great rush to get this whole collection <laughs> into Swedish territory. with To steal stuff so you could quickly legitimise it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So despite the fact that I've mentioned that his education was geared towards preparing him to rule, it was generally assumed that Christina would marry pretty young and that his husband would take over ruling the country while Christina would 
focus on having children. Several candidates were raised for his marriage. I don't have time to discuss all of them. The most prominent was Christina's own cousin, Carl Gustav. Do we like Carl? Carl's fine. Carl's an adequate human being. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Good, good, good. So Christina and Carl had been close as children. I mentioned that Maria Eleanor wasn't involved in Christina's upbringing very much. Christina was largely raised as a young child by his aunt Katerina, who was Carl's mother. So they're kind of like siblings. So they're kind of like siblings. So Carl went away to university, and when he came back, they seemed to begin to show romantic interest in each other. Christina wrote to Carl expressing sentiments such as his eternal love and so on. More into Carl than I anticipated Christina being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the very least, close friends with Carl. Yeah, so they exchanged, like, secret coded letters passed on by Carl's sisters and so forth. Oh, cute. When it came to the question of marriage, however, Christina spent several years trying to put Carl off, saying things like, well, why don't you go away and be in the army for a while and then come back and so forth. How opportunistic is Carl in terms of wanting political power? And how much is this just, like, I like Christina? You know, I don't think we can discount the fact that it would have enhanced Carl's political standing to marry Christina, but... I mean, you say enhance his political standing. It would have made him the king of the country. (laughs) It would have made him the king. That's about as enhanced as you get. Yeah. (laughs) But Carl also does seem to have been genuinely interested in Christina, so I don't think it's purely opportunism. Mm. Okay. So when Christina was eventually asked for a straight answer about whether or not he was planning to marry Carl. So Christina was asked this in private by Baron Axel Uxenhjern. So he had been the head of the Regency Council. He was Chancellor of Sweden. So he's kind of like the next person down from Christina. Christina told Axel that he and Carl were engaged. What? Okay. And then he wrote a hasty letter to Carl saying, look, Carl, just go along with this. We're not actually going to get married, but this will enable me to give you more titles and enhance your political standing. People will be happier to accept these things if they think we're engaged. Well, that seems like a dangerous game. Yeah. And was Carl like, yeah, no worries? Or was Carl like, Christina, what? Or was Carl like, my heart is breaking? I think Carl was kind of like, my heart is breaking, but I'm willing to go along with it. My heart is breaking, but I do like wealth and titles. (laughs) Yeah, and also Christina said to him, I will make you my heir, but if Parliament won't agree to that, so Sweden had a Parliament at the time, (laughs) now you know, then I will marry you. So Carl still thought he had a chance. Oh, that is a dangerous game. Either way, he was going to get to be king at some point. To be king eventually, so Carl went along with this. As you would, I suppose. In 1649, Christina formally announced that Carl would be successor to the throne. Since most people believed that they were already engaged, Parliament was very confused about this announcement (laughs) because it looked like Carl was about to become king anyway. And so Christina was approached in private by a parliamentary delegation asking what was going on. And he told them, My character is simply not suited to marriage. I have prayed God fervently that my inclination might change, but I simply cannot marry. So at this point, Parliament agreed that Carl could be heir to the throne. So let's talk about why Christina didn't want to get married. So one possible reason is his attraction to women. So Christina had several rumored relationships with women throughout his life. The one which we have the most information about and the one which is relevant at this time is his relationship with his lady-in-waiting, Eva Sparrow. Eva was best known for being very attractive and Christina referred to her by the nickname Belle. Although it was normal for someone perceived to be a woman to live and even share a bed with their lady-in-waiting, which Eva and Christina did, Christina and Eva were close enough that rumours about their relationship 
were circulating at court. Eva married in 1653, but even after that, she continued to live and to travel with Christina around Sweden. Her brother-in-law wrote, I find it amusing that my brother Jacob allows her to travel. So Jacob is Eva's husband. This would not be to my taste, if for no reason than the gossip to which it gives rise among so many people. Christina and Eva eventually parted for reasons that we'll discuss. So this wasn't the end of their relationship necessarily, but they were no longer in the same place. We'll talk about it. I'm just going a bit out of chronological order here. Okay. <laughs> but Christina wrote very effusive letters to Eva for the rest of Eva's life. Hmm. In 1657, to provide just one example, he writes, It is now 12 years since I had the good fortune to be loved by you. Only when my life ends shall I cease to love you. I send you a thousand kisses and ask you to assure yourself that I love you from the bottom of my heart. So how does that compare to how he writes to Carl? I don't have as long quotes from how he writes to Carl because the primary sources I had to get from the secondary sources when they'd chosen to translate them. I think it is more effusive than how he writes to Carl from what I have read. So he talks to Carl about eternal love and so forth, but I don't think he says, you know, I send you a thousand kisses and my life will end when I don't love you. Sven Stolper, who wrote a very important biography of Christina, but one that was written in the 1960s. Okay. So (laughs) mixed. (laughs) (laughs) Says, words then had quite a different meaning from what they have today. Yeah, all right. right, right, Sure, whatever. Well, the reason that I wanted to bring this up is because Sven Stolper, to his credit, does actually provide an example of how Christina was writing to someone who he wasn't in a relationship with at that time. Are we sure? Yeah, so we are sure that Christina and this person, a French noblewoman named Anne-Marie Dolion, were in her relationship because they hadn't met when this letter was written. Quote, It would be a feeble expression of my feelings for you if I called it an ordinary sort of affection. It is a burning love. Um, like, sure, let's just accept that they're not in a relationship for a minute. They're clearly, like, quite good friends then or something. Yeah, or is this just absolutely normal to anyone? Like, it's like, thank you for sending me that package. My ever-dying love for you, a thousand kisses, Ted. Did so. they have, like, an ongoing correspondence, though? They did have a correspondence, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That could be. Okay. That's true. I think Stolper just begins from the point of, look, they hadn't met, therefore they couldn't be in a relationship. Well, they I, couldn't be in a sexual relationship. I mean, but even then, <laughs> I'm not 100% willing to accept that. There are some very dirty letters that exist in history. <laughs> I guess that's a fair point, yeah. You know, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that, like, nah, there's a secret, obscene correspondence <laughs> that's going on there. We've just lost it or anything like that. We've talked about this before, and we do tend to be quite dismissive of historians who are just like, no, that's just how people talked back then, because so often mm. that is motivated by homophobia obviously. yeah yeah but like we've also talked about how that's a really difficult thing to actually analyze so how did you feel about it this time with those two examples do we think that Eber and christina are gay maybe we should stop saying gay given, <laughs> given that, we yeah. have no idea alice is keeping the gender reveal until the end essentially <laughs> but um, did you make a cake <laughs> did you make a cake no well Okay. Okay, well, next um, time we're doing a trans episode, someone's making a cake. Yay. <laughs> anyway, if we want to ask the question, like, were they having sex, as we have often discussed in this podcast, that's something you can rarely answer. It's very hard to have evidence for that. And also it's a shame that that is the kind of point at which something becomes, like, really queer or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Like, I understand why we go to that well, but it's just so unsatisfying yeah. and shallow. As yeah, a way of analysing a relationship. Yeah, no, that's oh. definitely true. And I'm not going to that as this is the metric we should use. I'm going to that as like, what is the question we're trying to answer? Is it, are they having sex? We can't say. Is it, are they romantically involved? 
from the outside and sometimes from the inside that's very hard to distinguish from platonically involved. Like, we can't read their letters and know whether that's romance or not. The fact that there were rumours at the time about their relationship suggests that they were behaving beyond the bounds of what was acceptable at the time for two people who weren't in a relationship. I think part of the reason that this is more likely to come up with Christina is that there was already kind of a lot of talk about Christina's gender and his gender presentation and so forth because he wasn't traditionally feminine. So if Christina had been presenting quite feminine, being quite a traditionally feminine person, perhaps the same actions would have attracted no gossip. So I think that would have influenced the conversations about him being in a relationship with Ebba. So it's very hard to judge because it is also tied up with that, I think. There are definitely intimate platonic relationships that can cross this line into socially unacceptable. Hmm. I mean, I feel at some point the only question you can ask is like, is this relationship outside the bounds of societal norms at that time? Yeah, if your question is, is this queer, then I guess that's what you can ask. And the answer was yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really sort of dissatisfies and discomforts me. And I know this is not popular in the field today to kind of be like, it becomes queer history when it's it's weird and it's only sexuality that's with deviant and things like that. Like that also doesn't satisfy me. Yeah, and also if that's your metric, if two people are having a relationship that's attracting homophobic gossip, does that make those people queer if they are just friends but people are wrong about it? But we do have to kind of try and find a way to nail it down because there just unfortunately isn't really space for us to be like, well, let's be really nuanced about this and like let's just kind of talk about like, you know, homosexuality and things like that because like the other side, people who are really wanting to be like, no, 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 this was very straight, don't have that nuance. Yeah. Yeah. And if you start saying, well, maybe it was a very close platonic relationship and we can read that as queer, they're going to go, oh, so you mean they were just friends? And you can't have that conversation. So another factor in why Christina was unwilling to marry is because marriage for him was expected to be in order to have children, to produce heirs, to rule Sweden. And despite the fact that he liked children, Christina hated the idea of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Frankly, fair enough. Pregnancy is some, like, elaborate body horror. Yeah, I mean, firstly, as we've discussed already a little bit when talking about... Hairy babies. (laughs) I wasn't going to say hairy babies. (laughs) I was going to say when talking about Gustav and Maria and their attempts to have Mm -hmm. a child, Yeah, pregnancy was very dangerous at the time. Yeah. And it often result in the death of the child or the parent giving birth or both. And I guess, like, if that doesn't fit with Christina's gender identity, like, that brings another Mm. kind of element into that. Yeah, I mean, that's also a factor that possibly influenced this. So Christina not only for himself hated the idea of pregnancy, but he didn't even like to see pregnant women. He would say, you know, I don't want pregnant women to come to my court. I don't want to see people who are pregnant. Oh, that's quite extreme. Yeah, like he was very extremely repulsed by the idea of pregnancy. He said, I could not bear to be used by a man the way a peasant uses his fields. So that was kind of his view of how marriage would turn out for him, basically. Like, all questions of gender identity aside, that's not inaccurate. As well as an aversion to marriage, the expectations of his role as monarch of Sweden didn't suit Christina for another reason. Despite being, as monarch, head of the Lutheran Church in Sweden, he was pursuing a secret interest in converting to Catholicism. Oh. It's because those Catholics dropped him. Surely they're just baptising. Maybe they dropped him in a bucket. Oh, publish this immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Groundbreaking work. (laughs) 
So there are several possible reasons why Christian was attracted to Catholicism. A lot of the scholars that he was inviting to his court were Catholic, and so he had this impression of Catholicism as being quite a free-thinking, philosophical, open religion in that way. Right. That is how Catholics are, yes. <laughs> he would discover later in life that Catholicism was not necessarily this free-thinking religion. He created a bias sample for himself? <laughs> yeah, he created a bias sample for himself. <laughs> Hasn't he met, like, Protestant, Lutheran, whatever? I don't know Christians do. Lutheran is a subset of Protestant. Uh, sure. Because Sweden wasn't a centre of arts or education or anything like that before he started inviting these Catholics over, I think oh. there weren't really that many for him to meet. So did he, like, especially invite Catholic artists, etc. over? Or did he just invite a bunch of artists and they just turned out to all be Catholic? <laughs> so a big factor was that at the time France was in the middle of a civil war, so oh, a yeah. bunch of people were fleeing France. Oh, yeah. And a bunch of these artists and scholars who were fleeing France were like, hey, if we flee to Sweden, Christina will pay us there. So a bunch okay. of Catholics fled France. So like Protestants Sweden. were in power in France at the time, and Catholics no, it was just oh okay, you know, a Catholic v Catholic civil oh. war. <laughs> I believe I mean, France yeah, is okay. just like majority Catholic. Yeah, yeah. that that was like that seemed weird to me. They weren't fleeing France because they were Catholic, okay. but they were. But if someone's Catholic. fleeing France, they're probably Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> I'm sorry that you just have to drag my like dumb Jewish self through this every time we talk about Europe. And I was just like, what is happening? So that's one possible reason why Christina was attracted to Catholicism. Another is that, as I mentioned, Europe was very unstable, and the idea of a united Europe under one pope, which Catholicism offered, appealed. I've never thought about that, but that makes sense. Yeah. Once you've rebelled against the pope once, there's no reason for Protestantism not to keep breaking down into various smaller, smaller groups. Would you say that's happened? Definitely at the time, yeah. I love how many of these, like, things that come up are just like, can we please get some stability for the love of God? Yeah, so I think Christina's attraction to Catholicism wasn't necessarily a religious one. It's not necessarily that he believed more strongly in the religious terms of Catholicism. It was things like stability, academia, and the reason that Christina himself also mentions is the value that Catholicism placed on celibacy. So do Protestants not do that? Look, I don't want to delve... Just, like, not as hardcore. Not as hardcore. Okay, that's fine. I don't want to delve deep into, like, Catholic and Protestant theology. All right, that's a reasonable choice. (laughs) (laughs) But broadly speaking, Catholics put a much higher value on celibacy than Protestants do. Okay. I mean, some stability, some cool art stuff, and an affirmation of your sexual choices is a pretty compelling set of reasons. I mean, the fact that that leads you to Catholicism is kind of bizarre from one standpoint. Sure, like, <laughs> yeah, very like, that's where we are. Um, so I imagine all these Catholics are just going like ape over the possibility of converting a monarch. Well, Christina was keeping it very, very secret. That seems like a good the idea. the Catholics that knew were. In the early 1650s, Christina began to invite various Catholic priests, specifically Jesuits, who are an order of priests that focuses specifically on scholarship, began to invite various Jesuits from around Europe to come and meet with him in secret. So fathers Paolo Casati and Francesco Molines came from Rome disguised as tourists. Francesco grew a beard to disguise his face. I just imagined the monk robes, but with like a Hawaiian shirt over it and <laughs> a camera. exactly what I had <laughs> just imagined. Um, yeah, yeah. So they both took false names. Father Paolo became Bonifacio Ponginibio and Father Francesco became Lucio Bonani. Bonani. <laughs> I'm sorry. So a lot of the knowledge that I'm bringing to this about the church comes from Anne Rice. (laughs) I just wanted to admit that for a second. I do know a lot about the Tudors. It's the Tudors and Anne Rice. Good. So you have a nuanced understanding of Catholicism, would you say? 
Yeah. <laughs> Multiple sources were used. <laughs> That's how you do it. <laughs> Another priest arrived from the Netherlands. He met with another priest from Spain. Christina's own spies, who didn't know anything about his plans to convert, came to him and warned him that there could be up to four Jesuits disguised at large in Stockholm. <laughs> and he was like, I see. <laughs> if you find any of them, bring them directly to me. <laughs> there was one case where a politician came from Spain, who was a Catholic. Spain was a Catholic country. And Christina assumed that he'd been sent as one of these many Catholics that he'd been trying to get to come and talk to him about Catholicism. And he kept trying to kind of meet with him in secret and send secret messages and this Spanish guy just had no idea what was going on. <laughs> That's so funny. So in 1651 Christina announced to Parliament that he intended to abdicate. It's a very reasonable response to being a king in my opinion. Yeah. Parliament refused. They talked him out of it. That's not really how that works, is it? I think he could have abdicated if he really, really stuck to his guns, but they talked him out of it. But then in 1654, he announced again that no, this time he was definitely abdicating. How old is he of Australia when He is 28. Okay. Or 27. He's going to turn 28 in 1654. Reasonable. I too would abdicate. That is my age. <laughs> <laughs> Reasonable. <laughs> He's been king as an adult for about 10 years. He kept his desire to convert a secret at this point. He negotiated with Parliament that despite no longer ruling the country, he would retain his title. As in king? He remains being called Queen of Sweden for the rest of his life. Okay. I'm not clear if it's specifically Queen because that was the title he retained or if people just are using Queen colloquially because that's what they often used colloquially. But yeah, he retained the royal title. Although Carl Gustav now became King of Sweden. So essentially there were two people that were king of Sweden and just only one of them was the actual king. Yeah. Sweden also agreed to provide an allowance for Christina. I mean, getting a bunch of money and being able to call yourself a king but not having to be the king sounds <laughs> perhaps like the ideal situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the 6th of June, he formally stepped down. The same day Carl was crowned. And that same night, Christina began a journey out of Sweden. So I may have just stopped paying attention, but like, is he okay? He's okay. He's cool. abdicated. Carl offered him a whole fleet to leave Sweden, however he saw fit. And he said, nah, and he left just with four men with him. Are they like his friends? I guess they were. There were names that I only heard in this context and never heard again. Okay. They don't seem to really stick around. There were some guys. Does he... <laughs> have to leave Sweden or is that just what he wanted to do? He was like, I'm going to abdicate because I want to like go and travel. Yeah, that's no, just what he wanted to do. Yeah. Surely you can travel whilst being the king. It's yeah. A, probably a different deal though. You're probably obliged to do a bunch of diplomatic stuff. I want to travel and I don't want to visit a bunch of boring people, so I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a story which we're not sure if it's true or not that the Danish king and queen came to meet him on the road. So he travelled first into Denmark and he was travelling so fast, so keen to leave Sweden and just go and see the rest of Europe that he had left the inn they were coming to meet him at before they even arrived. And they just kind of turned up and they're like, oh, he's gone. He was like, yeah, I don't have to meet with royalty anymore. And continued <laughs> on his way. That's pretty great. He merely took advantage of his newfound freedom in other ways as well. He cut his hair short, he began wearing trousers and a sword, and for a while, not very long, but for a while he travelled under the name of Count Christoph von Dorna. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> I've always thought that if I was, like, left to my own devices to choose a name and my parents hadn't done that for me, I would come up with some wild thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he did return pretty soon to using the name Christina, but he would continue to wear his hair or wigs, as was common at the time, in masculine styles and to wear masculine clothing 
or to wear outfits which combine masculine and feminine clothing throughout his life. This still sounds like the ideal life. Title, king. Responsibilities, none. None. Allowance, large. Gender, affirmed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I forcibly remove myself from this situation. (laughs) He was sort of on his way to Rome, but he travelled pretty slowly through Europe. Scandal. Having a gap year. Having a gap year, scandalising many people on his way. Not just because of his dress and his general kind of masculine behaviour and demeanour, but also by his other activities. So while he was in Hamburg, he twice stayed out so late that the city gates had to be opened after curfew to let him back in. So is he still just like a quite important person who people have to like show respect to, but also not the king? Yeah. What? That's so good. (laughs) Why didn't every king abdicate? Like... Carl can worry about taxes. Let me in, Hamburg. I'm here. Oh, that's so good. What a ledge. While he was traveling, he also stayed in several Jewish households. How? Why? I'm not really clear why or how he met these people. They were friends, I guess. He did speak out throughout his life about religious freedom for Jewish people and for Protestants and for Catholics. This episode has delivered nothing that I expected it would in terms of the horrors of the period, frankly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right now, Jewish people aren't allowed to exist in England. That's true. That's that is true. a fact. Yeah. Well, Christine was not about that. This isn't relevant. But Christina did have a plan for England, whereby... Um, a plan for England? Yeah, he had just, like, missed plans for Europe that he'd sometimes try and enact and never be able to carry through. He was very, very ambitious and had grand plans for everything. And, and like, no follow-through. No follow-through. <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> this is something that, like, we saw from a very young age in his studies. He'd get really passionate about oh, the subject and then drop it. Oh, yes, and, I'm only going to speak Latin from now on, starting Monday. <laughs> this is not the first time I've promised this and not done it. Yeah, so that was kind of a theme in all aspects of his life. But his plan for England, and I can't remember the details, involved Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell, a giant pudding and a rake. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell renouncing his... Whatever that whatever was. Whatever that was. Travelling to Rome, converting to Catholicism, and then being reinstated as King Oliver I of England by the Pope and allowing religious freedom within England. <laughs> Why did he think Why that, did he that, think this that Cromwell work? would want any part of it? <laughs> I don't know how hey, to Hey, Cromwell, what if you wanted to be a Catholic and also the king? <laughs> Did he just, like, write this down somewhere? Or did he, like, write, Dear Mr. Cromwell. I have an idea. <laughs> I'm not clear how he went about enacting this Christina. plan. <laughs> but A that- thousand kisses yours, Catholic <laughs> That's how I sign all my letters. <laughs> I would like an explanation of this Cromwell thing if you have one. I really don't okay, know. That's fine. No, I really don't <laughs> what know. age was he at? This was about was... this time that he had this yeah. particular plan. Uh-huh. So my age. Yeah. Yeah, and I really do not know the details of how he intended to go from, hey, I've got this idea, to a reality. <laughs> I just know this was one of the many ideas he had about how Europe should be. In late 1654, Christina privately converted to Catholicism. And then in November 1655, he publicly announced his conversion. So he wrote to Carl Gustav, and he also wrote to the Pope. 
The fact that there are people who are important enough that they write directly to the Pope when they decide to become a Catholic is quite funny to me. Like, it was a big deal that a Protestant monarch had converted to Catholicism. Yeah. I wonder if the Pope views that as kind of like collecting Pokemon cards. It's like, ooh, got Christian of Sweden. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> well, the Pope was pretty excited. Good for the Pope, I guess. Yeah, Pope Alexander, for the record. So Christina arrived in Rome in December 1655, and he was given a private audience with the Pope. The Pope gave him a lot of gifts. Everyone was super excited that he was there, basically. This was quite lucky for Christina, because although Sweden had promised to give him an allowance, Sweden was still pretty unstable as a country. They had a lot of internal problems, as well as being at war, and so they couldn't actually give Christina the money they had promised. So Christina was running out of money. So yeah, luckily for Christina, everyone in Rome was pretty willing to just give him stuff. He was given a house to live in, he was given horses and a carriage and all kinds of things. It's so bizarre to me that rich people are always the ones who get free things. I don't like it. Anyway, he's got a horse and stuff. Yeah, he's got a horse and stuff. He once again began to cultivate his interest in the arts. This included removing all the strategically placed fig leaves and modestly draped fabrics from the artworks in the house he moved into. (laughs) Okay. He also hosted musical, social, and academic discussion evenings in his home. One regular attendee of these evenings was 32-year-old Cardinal Decio Atolino. This always sounds like such a fancy thing to do when you're wealthy and it's, you know, 1655. Mm. And yet, when you do this in your own home, it's not. You're like, I had some friends over, we drank some wine, and it's like... Anyway, go on. Yeah. So, let's talk about Decio Atolino. So, Atolino had become a cardinal just two years before that. He was about the same age as Christina. Ah, so is he like a young hot cardinal? He's a young hot cardinal, yeah. So he was known for being very friendly, very flirtatious. Having a a young hot cardinal. Yeah. (laughs) I love that in spite of the fact that all priests are like 70 now, we still haven't shaken like hot priest as a trope. (laughs) Christina and Artelina became very close. He would pay long visits to Christina. They'd talk about classics and philology and philosophy. They began to communicate in coded letters. Communicating in coded letters is gay culture, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, Just because Anne does it. <laughs> well, Atalina had been the head of Vatican's codes department before he became a cardinal. Oh, oh, so man. he knows a lot of codes. That yeah. just made him so much hotter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't crack the code they used to write their letters until the 19th century. Oh, no. That's so cool. When the Pope ruled that cardinals couldn't visit noble women or people they thought were noble women alone, Christina obtained a special dispensation to allow Atalino to continue to visit him. So it was generally assumed by those around them that Christina and Atalino were lovers. Scholars disagree on this point. Yeah, I realise I've kind of lent into that with my immediately picking up on the fact that he's a hot cardinal, but I didn't mean to imply anything. So I think we can have a pretty similar conversation about Christina's relationship with Atalino as we could about Christina's relationship with Ebba. We have letters where they express very strong feelings for each other. We can't prove they had sex. That should not be the most important thing here. I do think we need to be aware, though, when we're looking at how scholars talk about Christina's relationship with Atalino and Christina's relationships with men more generally. So this is something that also comes up with Carl Gustav and a few others. That... Scholars, and I'm thinking especially of Sven Stolper here, sort of older scholars, but this is something that I also found in more recent scholars, struggle to talk about someone who is assigned female at birth but not conventionally feminine or conventionally attractive having a relationship with a man. Stolper could not comprehend the idea that a man could be attracted to Christina. His biography is literally like, look at this portrait of Christina, she's unattractive, clearly these men weren't interested in her. Gross. Yes, That's just... a personal comment that shouldn't be in scholarship. The fact 
that there are scholars that can't get their heads around the idea that, like, different people have different preferences. Mm, and also mm. just that, like, you can't see if someone is attractive from a portrait. That's no. ridiculous. Yeah, that's just not how people are. So obviously this was in the 60s. But to take an example of uh, Veronica Buckley, who wrote a much more recent biography of Christina in 2004, Buckley says that when Christina developed an interest in Artelino, quote, Christina's dormant femininity was awakened. No, oh, no, no. So Buckley tells us that Christina stopped dressing in trousers and began to wear gowns, solo cut the Pope himself told Christina off. Is, that is true? this true? Buckley didn't give a source, but Buckley doesn't footnote very thoroughly. I do have sources from around this time and a little bit after talking about Christina wearing trousers. So Buckley is not telling the truth. I believe there's a source that Buckley is referring to, but I don't necessarily believe that source itself is unbiased. And you are saying you found information like directly counter to that. Yeah, and I think Buckley's comments, while they're not as obviously horrific as Stolper just being like, Christina's too ugly for a man to be into him, show that Buckley can't conceptualise the idea that you can conform to one aspect of gender. So if you consider being attracted to men as conforming to femininity, but not conform to all aspects of that. So Buckley kind of goes, oh, yeah. as soon as Christine's attracted to a man, that means that Christina loves to wear low-cut dresses now and is feminine all of a sudden. Why we still have scholars that can't distinguish between gender and sexual orientation? <laughs> Why do we not treat this as a basic part of scholarship that you need to be literate in to be taken seriously? Yeah. So I have already talked a bit about Christina's attitudes to pregnancy and aversion to the idea of getting pregnant and attraction to celibacy. And Buckley also more broadly believes that Christina wasn't interested in sex. I don't think Buckley uses the word asexual, but that's what Buckley is talking about. Christina did, as I've alluded to a few times, have a reputation throughout his life for having a lot of sex. Did you allude to this? I mean, I've alluded to rumours that he was sleeping with the scholars that he was inviting to his court, for example. Rumours about his relationship with Ebba, rumours about his relationship with Atalino. There were constant rumours about his relationships with anyone, many people around him. In his autobiography, Christina writes... My ambition, my pride, incapable of submitting to anyone, and my disdain, despising everything, have miraculously saved me. I am innocent of all the things they have conjured up to blacken my life. So this is talking about these rumours. And then he thanks God for, despite, quote, the ardour of my temperament, giving him, quote, the strength to resist the pleasures of love. That doesn't sound very asexual. Yeah, so this is the quote that Buckley uses to argue that he's asexual. To me, this quote sounds more like he's interested in sex and sexually attracted to people but considers it a matter of Mm self-control that he doesn't always pursue that yeah i guess there's a way of reading that thanking god for giving me the strength to resist sexual urges in spite of the ardor of my temperament suggesting that like christina has other personality traits that seem to go with that kind of hot-headedness love of physical pleasures that kind of thing yeah but not being tempted by sexual pleasures. But, like, it's just really hard to say. Later letters between Christina and Artelino, which I will talk about very soon, do lead me to believe they were in a sexual relationship. In There is a letter where Christina says Artelino is no longer his lover, and then Artelino offers to continue being friends. So there's obviously a distinction there. Yeah. That I think is probably referring to a sexual relationship. But maybe it's not. And we can talk a bit more about it when I do bring up that letter that he writes to Artelino, which we'll talk about in a minute. 
Uh, but first, we're going to do some politics for a moment. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> So in July 1656, Christina left Rome again. Goodbye, hot cardinal. Yeah, he had a miniature portrait of Attilino he took with him. He cried over it as he left. We know this because he wrote a letter to Attilino about it. That's pretty hardcore. Saying, you know, they say that I went to sleep as soon as we left Rome. That's untrue. I was awake crying about you. Christina was ostensibly fleeing a plague outbreak in Rome and returning to Sweden to try and sort out his finances and get more money. So those were his claimed reasons for leaving. His real reasons were different, however. So the French politician Cardinal Jules Mazarin was planning to launch an invasion of Naples. Okay, this is relevant. (laughs) Go with me. And Mazarin hoped one day to seat the French king's brother Philippe on the throne of Naples. But for the time being, Philippe was underage, he was still a child, and Mazarin was looking for someone to rule Naples in the meantime. Surely Christina's not going to go and rule Naples. <laughs> well. All right. I'm, I'm sorry. Is Naples a country? Naples at this time was a kingdom, yes. Oh, it's a kingdom. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this situation, Christina's unwillingness to marry was something that worked in his favor. He was unlikely to produce an heir that would later rival Philippe. But he was an unattached monarch who had royal blood but no throne. <laughs> well, he's just, like, floating around with, like, monarch on his resume. Yeah, and Cardinal Mazarin was like, great, Christina's a good choice for this. We'll put Christina on the throne of Naples. <laughs> and then when he dies, because he won't have had kids, because he's obviously not interested in that, he'll make Philippe his heir. He just, like, left a throne, Christina. You don't want this. Well, I mean, there's a few factors here. So Christina left a Protestant throne. Naples is a Catholic, Catholic country. Christina was expected to marry in his role as King of Sweden. He wouldn't be expected to marry. He would be actively expected to not marry as King or Queen, I guess he would be known, but as King of Naples. So the throne of Naples doesn't have most of the drawbacks that the throne of Sweden has. I guess it also has a bunch of cash. It does also have a bunch of cash, and it's also much closer to Rome, where Attilina lives, and which is much more focused on arts and culture and those things that Christine is interested in than Sweden was. Sweden is quite remote from what's considered the centre of Europe, where those things are going on. Can you imagine being Attilino and getting one letter that's like, hey, I'm crying over your portrait, and the next letter being like, hey, I'm King of Naples. <laughs> what? He's not King of Naples yet. This is yeah, just I know. Plan. I'm just saying. <laughs> but like, the fact that this is a more plausible plan than the one where Cromwell, Cromwell becomes <laughs> Oliver the First. Yeah, you see how Oliver the First doesn't seem so dumb now. <laughs> No, it it does. Yeah, all of the best is still dumb. So Christina and Mazarin had been writing to each other in secret for a while, and Mazarin invited Christina to meet with him in France to discuss this further, and that's why Christina left Rome. He arrived in France in September 1656, and they signed a secret treaty agreeing that France would provide the army to invade Naples, Christina would sit on the throne, and then Philippe would be his heir. Okay. Sure. Why not? (laughs) Um, What Christina didn't know, however, was that he was just one of several options that Massimon was considering for this role. I mean, why would you not suspect that, frankly? How many other, like, unemployed monarchs were just wandering around (laughs) Europe? I'm unclear. I mean, I think the others would have been aristocrats, but not monarchs. So Christina spent the next year kind of not returning to Rome, but in between... Rome and Paris, writing letters to Mazarin and getting really non-committal replies. 
As he waited for the plan to take shape, however, Christina began to suspect that somebody close to him was betraying his secrets. And then in November 1657, Christina called his master of horse, so one of the very high up men in his circle, whose name is John Ronaldo Monaldeschi. He called Monaldeschi into a meeting. He locked the door. He had incriminating letters read that had been written by Monaldeschi that showed that Monaldeschi was this traitor. And then he ordered Monaldeschi's execution. As a monarch, although one without a country, Christina did have a legal right to execute Monaldeschi. I can't believe he just maintains all the legal rights of a king. Which yeah, that doesn't seem right. He has, like, no country, but people still have to treat him like a king. Yeah, that's, that's the situation. <laughs> that's, that's so wild. bizarre. So he was legally within his rights, but nonetheless, people were very appalled by this execution. So he does it? Just like some guy. There were three men present who, I think two of them, were actually involved in the execution. A freelance executioner? No, they were like people in Christina's okay. court. So it's like, hey, which one of you wants to cut off your friend's head? And one of them was like, I'm me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah, the men involved weren't keen to do this execution, as you have kind of guessed by the fact that they did know Monaldeski. The execution was pretty botched and took quite a long time to complete. What are they doing? Are cutting his head off? I didn't want to go into the horrific details of how they messed up this execution because it was pretty protracted. Um, Can't tell me that. What did they do to it? <laughs> they tried to stab him in the stomach. Why would you start with that? Because they're not executioners. Then it turned out that he had suspected what was going to happen. He was wearing mail. A bulletproof vest. He was wearing mail under his shirt. And so he was wounded but not killed. Then they tried to chop off his head but... As he had leaned forward being wounded, his mail shirt had slipped over his neck, so that also failed. And once again, he was wounded but not killed. They eventually beheaded him. But it was pretty gruesome. And there was a priest who was present who did write a very detailed account of exactly how that went down. The nature of the execution itself horrified people. Secondly, the fact that it had been conducted in private without a trial, although this was legal, was considered pretty inappropriate. Yeah, inappropriate is a pretty soft <laughs> word for something that is morally abhorrent. Yeah, okay, yeah morally abhorrent. Thirdly, Christina refused to explain specifically what Monaldeski had done. I mean, I guess Christina couldn't explain if he didn't want to, like, out himself as being in on this King of Naples plan. Yeah, yeah. So because Christina wouldn't explain and would only say, Monaldeski betrayed me, this led to rumours that Christina and Monaldeski had been lovers. Oh, for God's sake. And that Christina had killed him when Monaldeski had spurned Christina. Right. (laughs) Can something be about something else? (laughs) No. It seems much more likely that Monaldeski had just betrayed the details of this Naples plan to someone. Mm. But Christina had the incriminating letters burned and we'll never know for sure who he betrayed it to or why or so forth. So because of this, Christina found himself no longer welcome in Paris. So probably not King of Naples now, is that what's not, going on? Not, probably not King of Naples okay. now. I'm going to see if Oliver Cromwell will take you in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his plans for Naples were over and he returned to Rome. His reputation was pretty damaged even in Rome, but Atalino still stuck by him. Maybe Atalino was in on his Naples thing. I'm not sure if Atalino knew about the Naples thing or not. I told my boyfriend about the Naples thing. Yeah. That's fair. Around the time of Monaldeschi's death, rumours did start to come out about the Naples thing, so Atalino definitely eventually knew about it. Yeah. I don't know at what point he knew about it. Christina at the time wrote that he regretted Monaldeschi's execution, that it had to be done, justice had to be done. Later in life, he would write... No one should be executed within 30 days of the sentence of death. People can always be put to death, but you cannot bring them back. Christina returned to Rome for a while. 
1660 and again in 1666, he went back to Sweden to try and secure some more money. How's Carl going? Carl passed away in 1660, which is one of the reasons Christina went back to Sweden, because he was concerned that while he'd known Carl and they'd been quite close and Carl was kind of happy to have this other monarch of Sweden just getting money. (laughs) Whoever succeeded Carl might not be. So he went back to Sweden to try and negotiate this. He didn't have a great time, particularly there was a lot of argument about the fact that he wanted to come into Sweden with a Catholic priest and openly practice Catholicism while he was there, and that wasn't on. So he didn't have much success. When he was there in 1660, he also hoped to visit Ebba again, but Ebba's family refused to allow it. Ever died in 1662, so they never saw each other again after Christina's abdication. That's sad. It is sad. Around this time, Artelino and Christina's relationship also seems to have suffered. Artelino was hoping to become Pope one day. He had political ambitions, and being close with Christina stood in his way, both because of Christina's reputation caused partly by his execution of Manaldeschi and partly just by the kind of scandalous gossip that surrounded him. And also because Artelino had taken vows of celibacy and while many cardinals did violate their vows of celibacy in order to politically advance, he did have to present himself as taking that more seriously. We don't have Artelino's letters from this time, but Christina's do hint at the situation. He writes in a pretty hurt tone, your piety frees you from being my lover. And Christina often uses the word piety very kind of Scathingly. Negatively and ironically, yeah. And he rejects Artelino's offer to continue their friendship. So this is what I commented on before, that Artelino is no longer his lover and says, can we still be friends? And Christina says, no. I don't know. Like, I don't know how people used the word lover at this time, frankly. Yeah, people did use the word lover in ways that didn't necessarily imply sex at the time. So what language was that in? I believe it was in Italian. Okay. But I'm not 100% sure. So when you say... Lover was used in not necessarily sexual ways at the time. You're referring to an Italian word. Did yeah. You know the usage of. Yeah, yeah, I did read about this, yes. Okay. If what you're saying for Azzolino, this is kind of a reputation thing. He has to come across like he's celibate. What is the visible change then if mm. friendship was still a viable option there? Yeah, I mean, I guess the visible change would be, for example, not spending time alone together, which they were previously doing. Yeah, I mean, it could also be the case that he said we can't be as close as we once were, but we can still be friends. And Christina wanted the close relationship they'd had, which may not have been sexual. So yeah, we still can't conclude whether Christina and Artelino had sex, whether or not Christina may have been asexual. So it's time for politics again. No! The king of Poland, Jan II... Has just abdicated. He's like, I want what Christina's doing. (laughs) I want to be king of Naples and have a bunch of money. (laughs) Poland was an elected monarchy, so this isn't that uncommon at the time. And when we say elected monarchy, it means generally elected from quite a small pool of people. Okay, that makes sense. Royal blood. It's not just like anyone can put up their hand and be like, hey, I'd like to be king of Poland. But Christina, who was young... Is Christina going to be king of Poland? Christina did make a bid to become king of what? Poland. What? I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jan's father and Christine's father were cousins. So Christina did have a pretty decent claim to this throne. Once again, Poland was a Catholic country. Once again, he tried to frame the fact that he wasn't going to marry and have kids as a positive, saying, look, I'm not going to come in and start a dynasty or anything. Just elect me as king of Poland. When I, can, when I die, you can elect whoever you want again as king of Poland. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is 
so weird. He must be like writing a little couple at a table. <laughs> yeah, he's just submitting his resume around Europe. <laughs> um, so Atalino tried to write a letter of support for Christina, but he, he literally does. Like he has referees. Yeah, Atalino acted as a referee. He took a different tactic and promised that Christina would get married and have children, and for that reason, he'd be a great king, bringing stability to Poland. Guys, communicate. Um, in another letter, Atalino wrote that despite the fact that people might have misgivings about having someone perceived as a woman on the throne. Everyone regards the queen as a man already, indeed as better than any man. So there was kind of a lot of attempts here to use Christina's gender and identity to argue for him to become king, but in very conflicting ways. And ultimately, he was unsuccessful. He did not become king of Poland. Um, Who became king of Poland? Some Some random Polish nobleman. His name was Michal. So Christina returned to Rome. So... Christina's reputation was recovering now. He was greeted quite warmly when he returned to Rome, and he settled into quite a happy life there. So you can behead one of your friends. You just have to wait a couple of years before people are cool with you again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. basically. Just, They're like, he did kill a guy once, but it was one time. <laughs> yeah. Imagine just having a friend who had the right to execute people without trial. You know, that is like a normal guy, but like they can definitely execute you without trial. <laughs> like, Alice, I trust you not to execute me without trial. But if you had that right, that would still be weird. So Christina continued to be involved and attempt to be more involved in politics. Not in such big ways. He never made a bid for a kingship again. But he did continue to be quite influential within the Vatican. Despite the fact that I'm not going to give you more specific examples, he's still into politics. Okay. He continued to patronise the arts. He became very interested in his garden. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Atalino's political influence was waning. There were a few papal elections. He didn't become pope. He kind of gave up on that dream. Mm-hmm. And he grew once more very close to Christina. They wrote to each other daily and visited each other daily. They'd visit Atalino's family together. They'd write joint letters to other people, signed together. They'd give joint Christmas gifts. <laughs> yeah. That's very cute. As I said, I don't have time to talk about Christina's later life in great detail. Christina passed away in 1689, age 63, with Atalino by his side. Aww. He left orders that he didn't want an elaborate funeral or anything, but Atalino ensured that he had a very elaborate funeral, and he was buried in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, which is a big deal. Christina passed his library and a lot of his other belongings on to Atalino, but Atalino passed away 50 days later. Aww. So now I would like to talk a bit about Christina's gender. I would just like to take a moment before you do that to talk about, like, whatever that relationship was, what a, like, weird couple that was. Yeah, some nuts dude who keeps trying to become king. Of <laughs> yeah. whatever. Of, like, wherever. And, and the, the other one is... <laughs> Imagine Up if... and coming on the papacy and they become best friends. Imagine like, what is that? if Christina had become king of anywhere... <laughs> and he'd become Pope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a different world. Continue, continue. You okay. want to talk about Christina's gender. Let's talk no, about okay. Christina's gender. So I spent a long time being quite confused about Christina's gender. And then I came across one brief comment that mentioned that in 1676, Christina believed he was turning into a man. 
Oh, okay. And that cleared everything right up. <laughs> well, this is something that a couple of biographers just mentioned in passing and nobody really explained. It is wild, the things that, like, non-queer historians just are kind of like, I don't care to go into that anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why? Why won't you talk about this? <laughs> yeah, so this was the instance that I complained about to you where I had to track down the original French source and with the help of Google Translate figure out what was going on. <laughs> Alice, we know people who speak French. Yeah, but I discovered this source yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I spent the afternoon panically messaging Jason, being like, what pronouns should I use? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was no good. I mean, I say we know people who speak French, but in reality what I'm picturing is me like messaging my ex. I mean, like, hey, we translate some 17th century French. <laughs> Which maybe would work, who knows? Yeah. Try it out. This thing about Christina turning into a man <laughs> comes from the writings of French diplomat Abbe Servien, who was in Rome at the time that Christina was. He was writing in 1680, and he tells us, quote, The Queen of Sweden was surprised four years ago to see on herself an outgrowth of flesh in a place that made her hope to have become of our sex. So Christina was eventually diagnosed with a prolapsed uterus. Oh. So this is where the pelvic floor muscles become yeah. weak or damaged and the uterus isn't held in place and can protrude through the vagina. Gosh, that sounds unpleasant. He was treated for this and it seems to have been fine, surprisingly given medicine at the time. But yeah, the medical explanation is less interesting to us than Christina's reaction to the idea that he might be growing a penis. So he was very excited about this prospect. He informed all the people close to him that Aww. he was becoming a man. And he commissioned a very masculine portrait of himself wearing armor and wearing a helmet inscribed with Alexander, King of Sweden. Oh, well, that's an emotionally intense situation. Yeah, and once I'd read this particular source, this is what led me to decide to use he, him pronouns for Christina and refer to him as a man. Because obviously he was very keen on the idea of physically becoming and being recognised as a man. Mm. I do want to talk about some of the evidence that is used for people who don't agree with that. So one particular quote that often comes up in discussions about Christina's gender is one where he apparently said he was neither male nor hermaphrodite, as some people in the world have passed me for. It comes from a book written in the 1690s, so not that long after Christina's death, and it's supposedly a comment he made about an incident where his carriage overturned, his skirts flew up, and he accidentally flashed everyone. Oh, oh no. <laughs> so this book writes very positively about Christina, and it's very determined to defend Christina's reputation in the way that you defended a reputation in the 1690s. Yeah, so to dispel yeah. all those rumours I've mentioned. For me, the idea that he, who generally wore trousers anyway, was in a carriage accident that happened to reveal his genitals to everyone in order to reassure us that he wasn't a man, it just seems very unlikely to me that this really happened. And even so, in that case, that becomes a comment about what genitals Christina has, not how Christina understands his gender. Yeah, no. Okay, solid dismissal there. Christina does sometimes identify himself as a woman. And we saw that very early on in the quote where he says he had no interest in the things of his sex, referring mm. to women. But he always does it in a very negative way and in a way that distances himself from that. So in his autobiography, for example, he writes, I have escaped, even in matters spiritual, the weakness of my gender. My soul, as well as my body, have been rendered virile by God's grace. Yeah, that's hardly identifying once as a woman. <laughs> no, no, kind of. no. <laughs> no, that's acknowledging that he, I guess, is seen by society as a woman, 
But that's not saying, yeah, I'm a woman and I'm happy with that. It's a very negative comment about being perceived as a woman. Yeah. I don't have any examples of Christina talking about being a woman that aren't that kind of exact tone and message. Is the possibility that Christina identified as a man and was trans something that does get talked about by scholars and then dismissed? Or is it something that they just kind of like don't? really even seem to consider as an option i haven't seen any scholars seriously consider it It does get talked about by people who aren't scholars there's a bunch of articles on the internet about it for example of just like missed people being like hey i read about christina of sweden maybe seems seems trans trans. seems pretty trans but i didn't find anything scholarly about it okay and do those people who just like talk about it in miscellaneous articles on the internet tend to get into some of the stuff we've, we've talked about here like more obscure stuff maybe about for example, the potential growing of the I only and saw... so forth, or is it just like they're responding generally to Christina's presentation and so forth? Uh, they're generally responding to Christina's presentation. That's a pretty obscure source, and I think I only saw one person bring it up and they didn't really analyse it in any depth. They were just like, hey, look at this. Looks pretty trans. I mean, given that you had to translate it yourself from French. Yeah, it's, it's not a source that's really out there in English conversations about Christina, no. Mm. And I think that that's because no scholar has looked at Christina from the angle of Christina being trans. Because if you were looking at Christina from that angle, as soon as someone said Christina thought he was turning into a man, you'd go, huh, wait a second, what's this about? Which I just think no one has really done. I mean, obviously I didn't read every book out there on Christina, so maybe somebody has, but I'm not aware of it if so. I do want to comment, having said all this, that I originally put Christina up in our poll because we're coming up on Non-Binary People's Day later this month, and I thought, based on my limited knowledge, that Christina was possibly non-binary. I don't think that's the case anymore. Based entirely on that quote about the possibility of them having a penis? Yeah, I guess so. Do you think that's enough to dismiss that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. What would you say? No, I don't think it is. I have no idea how we talk about non-binary people in history. And, like, you'll notice that we kind of conveniently never have... Yeah, no, that's um, a fair point, is we don't really have a way to conceptualise what non-binary would like, look like I think like that it would time. be quite difficult to sort of differentiate between, you know, especially for someone who doesn't really have any language to talk about gender identity apart from in a just, like, very binary thing you're assigned at birth, mm. um, to differentiate between them kind of trying to express a binary trans identity or between them expressing a non-binary identity I also think we do just kind of, I guess, not have enough information here. Mm. I don't think until we literally, like, raised Christina from the dead and sat down and had a conversation with them about... Why don't we run that podcast? Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) About, like, about their feelings on a bunch of things before we could clarify whether what they were trying to express was like a rejection of femininity or an embrace of masculinity or something else Mm. entirely yeah and i guess for christina living in a very binary world a rejection of femininity is an embrace of masculinity masculinity and had other options been more clear to them yeah that's not what they would have expressed yeah yeah and like i was still on the fence about this all of yesterday as i was writing this script don't reveal to people we write the script the day before we record Yeah, I was messaging Jason about this and I joked that Christina had been labelled every single one of LGBTQI and A and that most of these were valid contentions. Mm. So yeah, it's a very complicated thing to read and especially at a time when gender and sexuality were so tied together and these things were viewed as so binary, it's very complicated to make a call. Yeah. I don't know whether we should make a call. 
Yeah. So I guess what we're saying here is that, well, maybe you didn't give us non-binary representation here. Maybe you did. Yeah. If non-binary people wanted to look at Christina and say Christina is non-binary, I wouldn't say you're wrong. I think that we need to be careful not to accidentally encourage the kind of discussions that happen between, say, like, lesbians and bisexual women, where people Mm. try and say, like, you know, Sappho, for example, belongs to lesbians. No, she belongs to bisexual women. Yeah, and yeah. And so forth. Like, I haven't really seen that happen too much with historical figures, with trans and non-binary people. Mm. Yeah, maybe because there's just so little trans and non-binary history that gets talked about. But yeah. Like, obviously, this person is queer regarding their gender in some way. If we want to take it that, you know, trans men and non-binary people can both identify with this figure, then, like, that's fine yeah right i think that we do kind of like run the risk in these episodes of maybe falling a little too hard on the binary side of things because like your resident trans expert (laughs) yeah is binary (laughs) yeah your resident non-binary person shows up to talk about tv shows (laughs) (laughs) yeah i did talk to jason a fair bit as i was trying to figure this out but i did not invite them to come onto the podcast and express their opinion so maybe that's something we should do in future Mm. Okay, so we've talked about gender. Let's talk about sex. I do want to return to that possibility that we brought up that Christina was intersex. Yeah. So before we do have that discussion, I want to quickly define intersex because a lot of people don't know what intersex means. So intersex refers to people born with sex characteristics that don't fit what society considers male or female. So that can include variations in genitals, internal sex organs, hormone levels, or in sex chromosomes. There are at least 40 different intersex variations. There are many different ways to be intersex. I'm not qualified to explain those to you or to try and point out a specific one that may apply to Christina, but intersex variations definitely could explain the confusion around Christina's sex at birth and also observations throughout his life that he had a masculine voice, like a very low speaking voice which could suggest higher levels of testosterone than might be expected. I also want to add that not all intersex people consider themselves queer or consider that intersex should be a part of the kind of LGBTQ+, etc. community, because being intersex is something physiological, it's something genetic that just describes how your body biologically is, rather than being an identity. So some intersex people consider themselves queer, some intersex people are queer for unrelated reasons, obviously, but some intersex people don't consider themselves part of that community. I just wanted to mention that before we talk about intersex on a queer podcast. I don't want to give anyone the impression that intersex people are all queer. So the possibility that Christina was intersex is something that has been discussed for a long time. In older scholarship and during his lifetime, people pointed to evidence such as his interest in women, his masculine behavior and masculine interests, his masculine dress and so forth, to be evidence that he was intersex. I just wanted to mention that these are not the reasons I'm discussing this possibility. Dress and behaviour and interests are not determined by sex, and intersex people have as diverse gender presentations and behaviours and interests and sexualities as any other group of people. So that evidence is not the reason we're discussing this. I just wanted to make that clear. (laughs) The reason we're discussing this is partly because it's something we have to address that does come up again and again in the scholarship and partly because of the issues determining Christina's sex at birth and comments about his voice. That part about Christina's sex being unclear at birth mm. because the call was covering the yeah. genitals. 
frankly just doesn't ring super true to me. Like the call is a separate piece of tissue. You can separate Christina from that. And I don't really see a circumstance where the person delivering the baby would not do that before they... People who have delivered babies have generally delivered many babies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to be confused by the call. It can be difficult to remove. So it could take a while to remove. It's not a just like, oh, just move this tissue. But it can be done within a short space of time. It's not like you just say, oh, no, we can never know. Yeah. And they obviously did that. So Christina was born a little bit before midnight, and it was pretty early the next morning that they announced that Christina was a girl. So they obviously had removed the call within that kind of six or eight-hour period. Why didn't they wait to announce the sex? Yeah. So, like, what are we suggesting that Christina had ambiguous genitalia in some way and someone who delivered the baby looked at it and was like, it's a boy, and then, like, was cleaning the baby up and was like, oh, no. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, that, that's what we're suggesting. And that, yeah. honestly, I think sounds more plausible to me. Mm, yeah, I, I think it's reasonably likely. So in the 1960s, Christina's coffin was opened for okay. unrelated reasons. Okay. <laughs> I feel better about that. <laughs> but when the coffin was opened, anthropologist Carl Hermann Jortje was given the opportunity to examine Christina's skeleton. That's pretty intense. This wasn't just to see if he was intersex, but this was one of the questions that he was hoping to answer. What were the other questions? Partly he was interested in the physical deformity that I've mentioned in Christina's shoulder and sort of seeing what the situation was with that. Baby dropping seems so long ago. Yeah, yeah, baby (laughs) dropping. Partly it's just a thing that people do. So, you know, that's like, hey, a chance to write up a report on a skeleton. Yeah, sure, let's do it. Yeah, the article I was reading on this mentioned that like several of Christina's ancestors have also had their skeletons examined. It's just not that weird thing to do when you have the coffin of royalty there. So Yosha found that Christina's skeleton was typically doing scare quotes, female. Mm-hmm. I will mention that anthropologists can't determine the sex of a skeleton with 100% accuracy yeah. at the best of times, let alone in the 1960s. Also, the skeleton was quite fragile and they didn't want to damage it, so they had limited possibility to kind of examine it closely. But nonetheless, they said it looked typically female. However, Yoshin noted that at the time, and I believe this is still the case from the little bit of searching I did, there wasn't any research on what an intersex skeleton mm. might look like. I was going to say. So I would be shocked if there was any kind of decent study about intersex people's bone structure. Yeah, that information. I would be wildly <laughs> shocked. <laughs> I would too. I don't think that information is out there. It definitely wasn't out there in the 60s. So if you've done that study, like write to us. Yeah. Yeah. Please let us know, because you have published all his measurements and everything of Christina's skeleton, and there's a lot of photos. Maybe we could reanalyze. But at the time, this work wasn't conclusive. In the early 2000s, a journalist requested DNA testing on a scrap of fabric that had been taken from the coffin in the 1960s. So this journalist hoped to determine Christina's chromosomal makeup, which may reveal an intersex variation. The request was refused by the lab which held the fabric on ethical grounds because of Christina's own right to privacy. Fair enough, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to ask what you think of that. I think yeah. that's fair. Like, no, we, I think that's fair Do too. we need to know that? Like, I mean, I guess there is the fact that intersex representation is very scant and intersex people, as like a lot of queer identities, do struggle with the fight of kind of being like, no, intersex people have always been here. This is just a real thing that people are. Yeah, but like, okay. that's just a fact. It is just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> 
Like, and yet, like just in ancient Greek sources and so forth, yeah. like this child was born with ambiguous genitalia, and then like, and then so we threw it down a ravine or whatever. So yeah. obviously that's horrific, but like that child yeah. existed. Yeah, it like was it, just yeah, eugenicized out. What's the like counter argument here? Are there people yeah. there being like intersex is some newfangled? Yeah, what are they saying? Like something in the water has turned people into sex? I mean, I think there's just kind of a lot of confusion about yeah what intersex is so there's a lot of confusion generally like from i watched a fair few videos of intersex people just kind of talking about their experiences there's a lot of confusion between intersex and trans yeah in the general okay. public and confusion about the fact that intersex is something biological that you're just physically born with that's not something that's understood okay yeah mm, okay. so when people say i'm intersex they kind of get oh what's this new identity we've made up now I feel like if people have that level of ignorance, it's kind of just willful ignorance at that point. Mm. And a skeleton from several hundred years ago being revealed to have been intersex isn't necessarily going to make them be like, oh, hang on a second. That's this is a real thing. Reasons. Yeah. Even if you don't care about these people's experiences, which obviously you should. Like if you're not willing to listen to the like basic biological facts of what's happening with their bodies, then I don't really see why this would swing. Yeah. Also, I feel like... When, you know, a journalist goes and is like, I want to know what Christine's DNA was, what the thought process behind that is very like, I want to know what this person was. That will answer the question. Yeah, and I assume it would be if Christina did have, for example, XY chromosomes. They'd be like, oh, Christina was a man. Solved. Yeah, and based even on how, like, scholars write about Christina's sex and gender, which I would say is pretty bad. You know, we heard just that quote from Buckley about dormant femininity, just things like that. Like I wouldn't trust someone who wasn't intersex to, but I I think there's sort of two questions there. One is, should we want this knowledge and should we obtain it? And two is, should that journalist have been given it? Mm. I don't care about that journalist, but I, I think that like this, information will be handled poorly isn't therefore we should suppress this information mm-hmm. like i i feel like the argument that christina has a right to privacy that like kind of you know digging around in coffins and things like that is sure sometimes something that's legitimate to do but i think it's something that we should stay squeamish about yeah, yeah. Possible. but like as you just said information about him is handled poorly now adding to the information we have mm, that's true like it's, it's not going to make the conversation worse yeah like whatever information we have people are always going to be insensitive about it because people are terrible mm. to trans people and intersex people and non-binary people and everyone <laughs> <laughs> we just have maybe a slightly better chance at understanding the circumstances that christina lived in mm, yeah mm. i mean if they do it are we going to talk about it like if if that information was available would you have discussed it i guess i would have yeah how yeah. do you feel about that <laughs> yeah i guess i would huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know how i feel about that now <laughs> you've brought that up yeah <laughs> how do you compare that to and i know it was inconclusive but how do you compare that to examining his skeleton i mean i felt weird about that immediately <laughs> yeah i think about this often when i'm reading journals as a historian i think about how presumably this person kept this private and would not have mm. you know wanted people as a rule to read their journal that's true mm. like we've read christina's coded love letters yeah exactly i think as a historian the fact that you're constantly invading people's privacy out of a sense of curiosity 
Like, that's what we do. <laughs> and I guess if we decide that DNA is where we draw the line, why have we made that decision? And then are we just deciding that certain things are more secret? And yeah. a problem that intersex people face is that they're often told by doctors to keep the fact that they're intersex a secret. They're often given non-consensual surgeries to try and give them obviously male or obviously female bodies to try and hide the fact that they are intersex. So yeah. are we deciding then that that knowledge particularly is more secret and are we feeding into that mm, and then, the dialogue then? Like I feel like I guess there's a kind of weird thing there where we've gone, well, some, you know, essentially random things that someone has no control over. That's too private to talk about. But things that they thought and chose and decided to hide, we were like, oh, the coded love letters. You didn't ask ethical questions when you looked for those, did you? No. Yeah. No, it was just like, oh, yeah, there's some love letters. Oh, they're in code. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was our reaction. Exactly. Yeah, like, I think it's weird that suddenly we bring up the issue of privacy there when it's not occurred to us for the whole rest of this mm. podcast. Ever. Like, as a historian, <laughs> I periodically think, gee, she'd be mad that I was reading her diary if she wasn't dead. And then I keep yeah. reading her diary. Yeah. I don't have a great conclusion to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it yeah. would be like cheap of us right to be like here's your pithy conclusion to the fundamental ethical questions of this field do we yeah, so, yeah. that's let's true awkwardly trail off <laughs> with dignity, <laughs> with dignity. <laughs> anyway is being a historian immoral this has been queer as fact yeah. <laughs> yeah okay with that we've been queer as fact thank you very much for listening i'm alice I'm Irene. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you find us on iTunes, we'd really love it if you would rate us and leave us a review there. It really helps us to reach a wider audience, and we will also read out your review on this podcast, as we're about to do now. So this is going to be a pretty long episode, so we're just going to read out one real quick. This is from someone whose username I'm going to pronounce is Sophia Wright from Great Britain. It is five stars. The title of it is Zoinks, and the full body reads Slammin'. <laughs> I love Thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you very much. Yeah. Very good. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, and you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to give us money, <laughs> we also have a Patreon. I mentioned at the start of this podcast that our patrons chose the topic of today's episode. That's just one of the rewards you can receive for becoming a patron of Queer as Fact. If you give us $10 or more, we will also thank you personally on this podcast. So I would like to thank our patrons, Joe, Luis, Emily, and Transfer Productions for sponsoring this podcast. As well as a Patreon, we also have a Redbubble store where you can buy merch with our logo on it. So if you really love Queer as Fact, I would encourage you to do that. We'll be back on the 15th of July when Eli will be talking about the Roman Emperor Nero. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.